0: The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. I'm Freddie. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the challenges down the line for whoever becomes the next Prime Minister. And you ask us, is sewage a problem for the Conservative Party? So the Tory leadership campaign carries on. Um, it's funny when you go on holiday and you come back and everything's just still the same. Yeah, nothing but, has changed. Yeah, the polls look very similar, Liz Truss way ahead. But they're still kind of announcing policies and they're still still plugging away at it, aren't they? Um, yeah,
1: they are. I think Rishi Sunak came up with his plan for levelling up of East Anglia yesterday. So I, don't, I mean, you know, nothing against East Anglia, it. I don't think that's going to change the uh, result for him.
2: <laughs> Isn't Liz Truss doing the same thing? She's levelling up Norfolk at the moment, yeah. Eastern powerhouse. Can you get get the the northern one sorted out first? I think I've possibly said this on the podcast before, though the contest has been going on so long. It's very difficult to remember the heady days of the... Anyone remember Penny Mordant? I don't remember Penny Mordant. I don't think this contest has really been good for anyone. It definitely hasn't been good for the country because we've got a vacuum where government should be while the economic crisis gets worse and worse and worse and worse. It hasn't been good for the Conservative Party because there is so much blue-on-blue Vitriol, and they've gone from sort of respectfully disagreeing to absolutely going at each other's throats. I mean, you had Michael Gove a few weeks ago coming out and saying that Liz Truss was a holiday from reality. So, you know, not a great look. Also, they're, they're sort of trashing the record of the government that they were both in and that has been running the country in various forms for 12 years. But I also don't think it's very good for the candidates because they keep having to come up with new policies some of which are reheated old ones, some of which make no sense, some of which are the opposite of what they're probably going to do if they get in. And you're sort of like, who does this length of contest benefit other than all the Conservative MPs who had holidays booked over August and didn't want to disrupt them?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good point. And actually, you know, this has filtered through to the grassroots. So ironically, lots of these policies are obviously being pitched to the party faithful, but the party faithful aren't that happy with how this contest is going. So I went to the biggest Tory association, known as one of the Premier League um, associations in Beaconsfield, which is in Buckinghamshire, just before I went off on holiday a couple of weeks ago, and it was really interesting because they weren't sort of against either candidate, but there was so much, there was so much disillusionment, there was so much, yeah. there was a lack of enthusiasm. You know, they wanted Kemi Badenoch on that ballot paper, they wanted Penny Morden on the ballot paper, Boris Johnson back. Well, actually, that that was interesting because there was not much enthusiasm for Boris Johnson either, but there was a disappointment with the lack of choice that they have been given and also the issues that were being debated by the two candidates. They're all saying, well, of course, you know, tax cuts sound attractive to people like us, but there there are big problems in the country. And they're the ones, you know, they skew older, obviously, and they're the ones who have to encounter sort of their GP and and the NHS more often than perhaps the general population do. And they're also very aware that times are tough for people who have perhaps less money than them. So I do think there's a little bit of an element of patronising these people mm. um, that happens with, with the candidates when they go around the country. This was the biggest association, so the biggest chunk of members, and also the biggest, most active branch, which is in Gerrard's Cross, which is a sort of affluent town there. And and they were saying, we feel a bit like you know this has been a choice given to us by a centralising party that hasn't taken our views into account. So I think it will be difficult for whoever wins. We think it will be Liz Truss if the polling's anything to go by for what it's worth, the people who I spoke to said that they felt like it was a bit closer on the ground and a lot of them haven't voted yet. So Mm. there was a bit of indecision there as well. But by what they were saying, it's going to be quite tough for whoever because I think that lack of enthusiasm is reflected in the MPs as well, the Conservative MPs. I think in Harry Lambert's piece, our colleague who's not able to join us on the podcast today, but he's written an interesting piece on sort of what went wrong for Rishi Sunak, which is in the latest issue and you can also read it online. But I think he points out that... Only three in ten Tory MPs voted for Liz Truss as leader in the final round. Even though she's the front runner now, that's not a huge amount of support within the parliamentary party either.
1: No, and it's interesting that that might become a massive problem for her going forward. But I think what you're talking about, the membership not necessarily being on board with what the candidates were saying is really interesting because the overriding theme of this contest, I think, for me, has been the fact that both candidates are speaking to the membership, they're not speaking to the public. Um, And if they've got that judgment slightly wrong they've taken a huge reputational hit for focus on things that the public aren't as focused on as the membership are such as tax cuts and neglecting the overriding issue which is, of course is the cost of living mm-hmm. so that may be negative hugely negative and wasted opportunity actually to address important issues that are shared by the membership and the public so if, if that is true that's really interesting
0: yeah. And also whenever I ask sort of what's your main thing, what's your priority from either candidate that you might be voting for, it was always someone who can beat Labour. It was always that electoral factor. Mm. And obviously the jury's out on who it would be more tough for Keir Starmer to go up against. We've we've discussed the pros and cons of yeah. both Rishi Sunak and Liz Trust on this podcast, I think numerous times. It's but it was interesting same. that that was a priority rather yeah. than, you know, true conservative values or something.
1: Yeah, like it's that. almost the same issue again. It's are you focused on the issues that are going to win you the election? And Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have not been, both because they've been going on this race to the bottom on tax cuts. But I think we may or may not see Liz Truss pivot towards the electorate if she does become prime minister. And that will be fundamental, how quickly she can change, how quickly she can focus on the cost of living and whether she can come up with a package that really alleviates some of the pain people are feeling.
0: Yeah, because she's cooking up an emergency budget at the moment, isn't she, Rachel? It's
2: not an emergency budget. It's a fiscal event. Um, (laughs) and, And that downgrading is significant because it means she doesn't need to get new forecasts from the OBR, which will likely show that the fiscal headroom that she thought she had for her tax cuts doesn't exist, and that things are actually much worse than we thought. Now, her argument, which actually I kind of Buy a little bit, is forecasts like that would take 10 weeks to, to properly work up and we just don't have that time and we have to move fast. And I think that's where public sentiment is as well among Conservative members and also among the public in general, which is you have to do something before energy bills rise in October do something and and sort it out later. But I think there's something slightly disingenuous about continuing with the, we're definitely going to have all these tax cuts which are probably not funded, including the the national insurance increase, which I opposed at the time because it's quite regressive and it's another way of transferring wealth from the the, the young to the old and there are all kinds of issues with who it hits and and what it will do. But one thing that it would do is provide more money for the NHS and social care and she's planning to, to cut that but still maintain those those spending commitments and i think when those forecasts do come in whenever she does have to do an emergency budget it will be quite clear that there isn't the economic case for the tax cuts and then she's in trouble because that's kind of what her entire ideological vision for the country is and it takes somebody very strong politically to say this is what I believe in an ideological basis but looking at all the facts looking at all the evidence now is not the right time for them this is what we should be doing instead. I- ironically that's something that, that Margaret Thatcher was very aware of. Liz Truss I don't think has that kind of steeliness about her to be able to say yes I believe in this but this is what the country needs right now and to to, to pivot and that's Kind of quite worrying from a long-term economic perspective.
0: Well, I think that's really interesting that you say that, because I do think she has this reputation as a true ideologue. But actually, I think you're right about the fact that she does she can bend with the times. You know, she's been in cabinet for a really long time, which shows that she must be someone who's able to compromise. But also she's U-turned, hasn't she, during her leadership campaign, for example, on the regional pay Policy that she announced, she U turned very soon after that, which was the bit about that announcement that surprised me the most, actually. So, do we think we're going to see sort of Boris Johnson Mark two, someone who blows with the wind?
1: No, I don't think so, because I think her principles have stayed quite consistent over the past decade or so, and she she is very aware of, for instance, the public uproar over the regional payboard policy, and she wisely U turned. I mean, I think that speaks to her political now perhaps but it doesn't speak to the fact that her principles are, are flexible i think it's the opposite really that was when you saw what she really thought it's the same uh-huh. with her comments about productivity and the fact that she blames british workers for our low productivity i think that again was revealing the fact that she's still very much focused on the tax cut she's very much focused on the free market and she's going to carry that on whatever happens i mean she's going to try and sell it in a way that uh, people will buy but i don't think she's going to massively change her ideology now
0: so she's not going to do a sort don't of Keir style, <laughs> of, you know, tacking to the left or in her case, obviously, tacking to the right during the campaign and then trying to. No,
1: I don't think so. And that's the biggest risk for her at the moment is policy, because I don't think she has the right principles for the moment. I mean, at the moment, we're facing such a crisis, whether it's a long term in terms of levelling up and in regional inequality or just the cost of living that's going to at least consume the next year and a half. She doesn't have the belief in the intervention of the state she doesn't believe that we should spend more and all these problems require those sorts of solutions so i think that's long term her biggest her biggest threat
2: yeah, I think I think Freddie's right. It's there's always something tragic about it. Somebody who believes and has believed throughout her career in sort of small state lack of intervention, that kind of free market conservatism coming to power. I think she's going to come to power at a time when the country faces so many crises that the state is going to have to get very majorly involved on a scale probably not not seen before. And with COVID and with energy bills, but also with the, the crumbling infrastructure and the crisis that the NHS is facing you might believe that Britain, in an ideal world, should be run with very little intervention from the state. But to get through the next 18 months, two years, it's going to take some some quite bold, visionary policy about what the state is, is for and what it can do. And she is almost exactly the wrong person to do that because of her ideological beliefs. And you can see this a little bit. I mean, it's all speculation. No one knows what she's going to do. But there have been rumours about what kind of plan she's drawing up to... Intervene in energy prices and and to uh, keep energy costs down for consumers, but also keep the energy companies afloat during the winter. And it looks like it's going to be offering them lots of loans that will then have to be paid back through higher bills and, and taxation further down the line. So essentially, it is still putting the cost of supporting the energy companies onto consumers in the long term. Now, the details of this are still being worked out. She might not do it. All kinds of speculation, as I said, but I think it's important to note that even the very few suggestions we have about what a policy intervention might look like still don't put consumers and households at the heart of it, it's still trying to get away from the fact that you might have to directly offer ordinary people help, which is something that she seems to want to avoid at all costs.
1: Yeah, and I think Michael Gove really got on to this issue in his article and that's why it was quite interesting. It was interesting of course that he came out for Sunak and uh, not for Trust, but the policy criticisms were the most interesting part of it. He said that Trust's policies will just protect the wealth of the FTSE 100 executives. I mean that's quite damning and it also speaks to the fact that there is this ideological divide within the Tory party as well. There are those people who, for instance, back levelling up, they believe in more investment in public services and the trust camp, I mean, uh, we've said that I have spoken about this before, she's at risk of absolutely cracking the coalition that got Johnson into power in
0: 2019. How
1: so? Well, because she doesn't I don't think particularly believe in levelling up and that was one of the main reasons that people voted for Conservatives in 2019 even if it wasn't actually the phrase wasn't used that much during the campaign it was more this general belief that there's going to be some policy to redress the uh, regional inequality in the country we're also gonna have big investment in public services you've got to remember the mantra was about nurses police officers it was nothing about um, tax cuts it was you know it was economics, it was more investment in addressing regional equality. than social and values, it was about Brexit. Those two things I don't think Liz Truss really believes. I mean, look at what Liz Truss's Brexit is. Liz Truss's Brexit is, let's get all this EU law off the statute books. You didn't really hear that when people voted for Brexit in 2016. It wasn't about, oh my God, there's so much law, we need to get rid of it. What it really was, was a vote against the establishment. It was against people who had not invested in the North and other places around the country for decades and decades. And I don't think she understands that.
0: Well, this is really interesting because this will be the next challenge. Obviously, the immediate challenge will be the energy bills and the cost of living crisis. But the next challenge will be trying to appear as if you're not betraying the people who promised that you'd improve their their towns and their cities and other regions. I mean, I've just been in Devon, you know, where they feel really overlooked by the leveling up agenda they thought that this was going to be a economic rebalancing of mm. the economy when they when they voted boris johnson's government in and they can't see that that being manifested and maybe that's a bit unfair because these things obviously take take a long time. But nevertheless, as Rachel Wolfe, who co-wrote that manifesto, has been saying, there needs to be a physical sort of representation of levelling up before yeah. the next election arrives. And that is going to be a big challenge, particularly if someone like Liz Truss, who, like you say, her focus hasn't been levelling up, yeah, is, is the Prime Minister. Yeah. And
1: we had Will Tanner, who um, is the founder or the leader of Onward, the think tank, say to the new statesman recently, in two years' time, these voters are going to have absolutely no sympathy for a government who haven't delivered on those promises they made in 2019.
2: And I think Brexit is part of that as well. Lots of people have pointed out that there were two broad arguments for Brexit. One of them was about liberating the UK economy from EU red tape. We heard about London being Singapore on Thames. Slash all the red tape, slash all the regulation, make us really competitive, get in lots of foreign imports, so lower standards essentially for for cheaper goods and and sort of set the economy free. And that is very much the Brexit tradition that Liz Truss, who obviously campaigned for Remain, but that's the Mm -hmm. Brexit tradition that she comes from and that she embraces and that the people around her embraces. The other argument was the Firstly, let's fund the, the NHS with the money that we send to Brussels. But also the EU has stopped the UK government from really putting in the investment and the attention to left behind parts of the UK economy. We need more protectionism. We need cur- curbs on immigration. So we support British workers and British jobs. We need higher standards. We don't want foreign products coming in here and, and undercutting us. Basically, we need more State intervention, just of a different kind than what the EU offered. And lots of people said at the time, those are two valid perspectives, but you cannot come up with a Brexit version, a version of Brexit that achieves both of them because they are fundamentally different visions for the UK economy. And for six years now, we've had various Conservative politicians trying to ride two horses, sit on the fence, whatever cliche you want, to try and marry those two views up. And you just can't do it. And it might be that under Liz Truss, that is when the illusion that you can have both crumbles and she has to deal with the consequences of that paradox.
0: Yeah, and exactly. And all the while we've got higher immigration now than we did before the EU yep. referendum. It's just from non-EU migrants rather than EU migrants. And it's interesting because people are starting to notice this now. And actually, you know, Steve Barclay, the Health Secretary, you know, was saying we want to bring more overseas workers in, not only to staff the NHS, but also social care as well. So, you know, they're actively putting these kind of sectors on the shortage occupation list, you know, to try and to try and make it easier for those kind of workers to have visas to come and work here. That wasn't the plan sold to the country by vote leave or, or certain members of the vote leave campaign. And Neil O'Brien, who is you know, a Tory MP, former levelling up minister, who is respected in the party as a sort of policy thinker, he wrote a piece about this for Conservative Home recently saying... Tory voters, perhaps first time Tory voters in 2019, are going to start noticing this and thinking that they were sold something that hasn't come to pass. And it's only going to become more acute because we have so much staffing shortages in so many different industries.
2: Yeah, would they rather have less immigration and not be able to get a a hospital appointment because they might have a Filipino nurse? Or would they rather get healthcare and accept that the flip side of that is you you
0: have more... Oh, yes, yeah. well, so I'm from, not agreeing from, from with the perspective, but I do think that it is...
1: Or you pay nurses properly and try yeah. and train them more at home.
2: I don't think any of the candidates are kind of pushing for higher pay for, for, for nurses.
0: No, I don't think they are. No. <laughs> yeah, um, that would be a big scoop if they were. Um, but yes, of course, that's going to be an upcoming issue as well with all of the strikes that are going on at the moment. So we will keep looking at all of these individual issues in the upcoming episodes of the podcast. And while you're here, we want to remind you about the inaugural New Statesman Positive Impact Awards, which will be held in London on the 6th of December. It will be a celebration of teams and individuals that have demonstrated leadership and created real and lasting change in business, politics, society and the environment. The awards ceremony will be judged by Andrew Marr and other high-profile figures. The awards are currently open for entries and the deadline to enter is Friday the 2nd of September. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back.
3: From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Edward Dox on the death of Boris the Clown
0: When did the booing start? He was never exactly sure
3: A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk One presenter told me that producers had taken to booking their own parents May Robson on why women's football is the more beautiful game Like most of the England squad, the Euro 2022 captain, Leah Williamson, can't afford not to have a plan B Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And now's time for a section we like to call... You ask us. You ask us. Thanks so much for joining us, India, our environment correspondent. You're actually dialling in from Devon. How clean are the seas in Devon? Oh,
3: Well, they haven't been great in the last few weeks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the reason I'm asking these personal questions is because our question this week from a listener is, what does the sewage crisis mean for the Conservative Party? So if anyone hasn't heard of this scandal, Conservative MPs voted down an amendment last October put forward by a member of the House of Lords, a hereditary peer, basically which would have put a legal mandate on water companies not to run wastewater into rivers and seas, which they are allowed to do on occasion when there's too much water in the system. This caused sort of more of a scandal than I think anyone in Westminster expected. Uh, there were lists of, of the MPs' names who voted down this amendment going round. And those MPs, particularly those in constituencies that are sort of on major rivers and by the sea, received so many letters from, from their constituents that it, it really spooked the party and they had to put out these social media rebuttals about what they were really voting for. So it has been an issue that has been affecting the reputation of of MPs in certain Seats And at the time, we spoke to David Gork, who used to be a Hertfordshire MP, Conservative MP on the podcast, now a columnist at the New Statesman. And he was telling us that, you know, it was a a real nightmare for his colleagues. And he still lives in his old constituency and said that locals there are, you know, it's been a real issue, a major issue, the River Chess in that constituency, uh, having sewage running through it. Um, And he said that it's sort of a gift for Lib Dems to put on their leaflets that the local MP and ex-constituency voted. to to pollute the the waterways and it's resurfaced why is it resurfaced India
3: so essentially because we had a great big downpouring of rain I think it was the beginning of last week after an incredible dry period you know following following on from the, the historic heat wave and the heat wave had dried up the ground so it was cracking in places and completely hard so when the rain did finally unleash um, instead of soaking in like we wanted it to do and, and filling up the kind of underlying water table, it just gushed off the surface straight into into drains and sewers. And when you get a, a, a big uh, input like that, the water companies they get very worried that the sewage is going to back up into people's homes and you're going to get get it coming up your sinks. So they do have permission in exceptional circumstances to release the sewage untreated straight out into season waterways, uh, which is what they've been doing a lot of recently and to be honest is what they seem to do a lot of very, very frequently Um, and sometimes even when it's not raining, which is what people are rightly very angry about.
0: Yes, and and I think you hinted at that there in your answer, but it is happening more and more, isn't it? I think there were more serious incidents of pollution last year than there had been since 2013. Why, why are they doing it more and more? Is it because we're having more of these kind of rain events or is there something more suspicious going on? So
3: essentially it's an ongoing infrastructure problem that the water companies are just not tackling fast enough. Um, they, you know, This has been a problem for a long time. But they're not upgrading the infrastructure at the rate they need to. That's the same for the leaky pipes, and also for the kind of reservoir infrastructure that we need to deal with uh, things like drought, increasing drought in terms of climate change. So you're not got enough cli- uh, infrastructure there. Climate change is, you know, increasing at pace, and we're getting a kind of perfect storm of
0: shit, really. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that we have a beep button. How far are the Conservative Party to blame for this? Obviously, Tory MPs voted against forcing water companies not to do this. Their argument would have been that it would have cost sort of hundreds of billions too fast and ended up with, like you said, you know, sewage backing up and and entering our own homes rather than somewhere else. But, you know, they are the party that has been in power for a very long time and they they have the responsibility for regulating those water companies that that you mentioned. So what's your take on that?
3: So it's not something that can be fixed overnight. And the MPs were right about that. But on the other hand, you know, they've been in power for for 12 years um, and have not forced the water companies to tackle this, which... The government does have the power to do the regulatory bodies do have the power to do um but in that period instead of supporting the regulatory uh, bodies like the environment agency to actually hold the companies to account and uh, enforce the the um conditions in the proper way they've instead been cutting the funding for that body um a huge amount in the last a uh, few years and um yeah, it they, they just,
0: we haven't seen the change that we need. Mm. And these are the type of the environmental issues that sort of suddenly get the public extremely riled up that perhaps in Westminster it isn't, always as appreciated as it should be. I think there were some similar stories concerning the natural world and the environment over the 2017 general election that, you know, perhaps journalists like us didn't realise were bubbling under the surface to do with ivory trade and fox hunting and things that did have a big bearing on what people were talking about online, at least. Rachel, this seems to be one of those issues. How damaging will it be for whoever gets into number 10?
2: Well, I think the reason it's caught people's attention is because it's one of those areas where government regulation or or lack of regulation has a very visible, visceral effect (laughs) on on people's lives. You try and take your kid swimming in the sea and you can't because the sea's closed because there's too much sewage in it. That resonates in a way that other environmental issues that are a bit further away or a bit more long term, they don't have that kind of emotional resonance but I think the sewage in the seas and indeed the drought conditions and the fact that uh, all the water companies are telling us that can't have can't use our hose pipes and things because of the drought worth pointing out as I think we have done on this podcast before that the water companies lose a huge amount of the water through leaky pipes and uh, mm. broken infrastructure in London Thames water which has just imposed a hose pipe ban they lose 24 percent a quarter of the water that they handle Leaks and, and problems with the pipes in the infrastructure. All of this comes down to a long-term lack of investment and lack of oversight and, and and regulation. And some of that is very much the issue of the water companies themselves, that they're paying their shareholders and their CEOs mind-boggling amounts while failing to do the necessary. Infrastructure work. But some of it is also the government, both in terms of lack of regulation and lack of funding. India mentioned that the environmental agency had had their funding cut. In fact, 24 million was cut from a government grant for environmental protection that included surveilling the water companies to prevent the dumping of raw sewage. This is from a Guardian article that was in Tuesday's Paper and who was head of DEFRA at that time when that decision was made? Oh, it was Liz Truss. So I think it is, it's it's kind of worth pointing out that during the 12 years that the Tories have been in power, there have been lots of occasions where ministers have made decisions to make cuts uh, that at the time were seen as waste and that they could cut money and, and slash budgets and do things more efficiently. And now, a couple of years down the line, we're realising that actually it wasn't waste, it was built in resilience, and now we don't have that resilience. So we're seeing it in environmental... Issues like with water and sewage. We're also seeing it in the NHS and sort of social care. You make cuts to local governments' social care, those problems back up, and you have hospitals who are unable to discharge patients because they've got nowhere to go. And that means that ambulances coming in can't uh, offload their patients because there are no beds, and then the ambulances don't turn up. So that's one example. You've also got the barristers' strike who voted to continue their strike this week because the criminal justice system had huge cuts. I think it lost about a quarter of its budget under the Cameron austerity years and they sold off a whole lot of courtrooms and they made a whole lot of cuts and as a result of that pre COVID it was 17 months to get a case from an arrest to to, to trial. So there were all these instances where cuts that really date back to David Cameron's government seemed at the time like they were being very efficient. And actually it turns out that we needed that capacity in the system and now we're facing crises on multiple fronts because all of those areas, the institutions of the infrastructure are crumbling.
0: Yeah, I think you make a really good point about austerity there because one of the things that we always used to talk about on the podcast back in the austerity years was that it was hitting the poorest the hardest and therefore lots of the opinion formers, you know, lots of the people in newspaper offices, the people sitting in parliament weren't necessarily noticing the sharp end of those cuts. But now we're seeing the legacy of them hitting the things that people see day to day. Oh, you know, why can't I get a bed in the emergency department, for example, like you say, because of the social care cuts. Most people won't engage with the social care system in their lives, but they will be going to hospitals. They want to know if they dial nine 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 for a sick child, the ambulance will turn up. Exactly. And then it's the same with the waterways. Most people will notice when there's sewage in the rivers and seas that Britain used to pride itself on keeping very clean. And so you do have these very visceral, very immediate examples of what happens when you cut these kind of budgets years before. And India, we've been talking a lot about the political implications, but what are the environmental implications of having this this sewage running through through the water?
3: So there's the human side and then there's the nature side, and I did just want to mention um, uh, after after saying earlier that I wouldn't swim in the Devon Sea. Uh, it's actually really lovely, and if you do want to come to Devon on holidays, please do, and please feel free to, uh, safe to get in the sea. But I would recommend checking out something called um, the Surface Against Sewage app and that gives you real-time updates on where the water companies have been releasing untreated sewage straight into the sea. So if you're going to go swimming anywhere along the British coast, just check that first for peace of mind, because this is toxic stuff. Um, I think in 2020, there was 153 reports of sickness related to swimming and exposure to these sewage spills. So yeah, it definitely take it seriously. And then Environmentally, it is just grim. If you Google Lake Windermere at the minute, you'll see it's bright green with algae, and the algae is a sign that something is really wrong with the water. And it's a vicious cycle where the algae sucks the oxygen out, and then fish can't breathe, things can't grow, and you just end up with a dead ecosystem. Uh, only fourteen percent of rivers are in good condition, ecological condition, at the minute, uh, which is really serious. um I should mention it's not just the water company's fault and the issue of these sewage spills. Some of it is also, well, a lot of it is also due to farm runoff and issues related to agriculture. But all of it together is creating a chemical soup in our in our waterways. Um, and considering we have one of the most depleted nature um, situations in Europe, it's, it's just not good enough.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, India. Um, and I'll leave you to the rest of your day uh, where I'm sure you will be taking a dip (laughs) thank you for having me (laughs) thank you we'll have you on again soon
2: Uh, also if you want to know more about just how dirty the UK's rivers and seas are uh, we did a chart of the day on the new statesman earlier this week and we
0: come basically right at the bottom of the list sorry guys you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me anusha kellyan and my colleagues rachel cunliffe freddie hayward and india bork We're produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave us a nice review and to subscribe.